Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us today. Lots to get to. Coming up on the program, we are going to talk to somebody who had a presumptive case of COVID-19 and has now officially recovered to find out what that was like going through that. We'll check in with Reggie Cicchini, our global Washington correspondent. More on Bernie Sanders calling it quits as far as his presidential run and what this means for primaries going forward in the United States. Also coming up on the program, as you heard in the news, BC provincial parks closed as the provincial government does more to try and stop the spread of COVID-19, saying the move was necessary to keep people socially distanced to keep people physically apart, especially heading into a long weekend. We're also going to check in with one of the players on the Vancouver Giants. As we know, the season was cut short, but this one particular player lives in Europe and was unable to go home. Pretty amazing story how the community has stepped up to rally around him. And a reminder, we are going to hear from the Premier during the program at 1.15. John Horgan is set to address British Columbians talking about the spread of COVID-19. So we will bring that to you live right here on the program. First, though, we're going to take a look at a very important issue, and this has to do with hospital workers, in particular, the workers who are cleaning the hospitals, which is an extremely, extremely important job right now. And joining me to talk about this is Jennifer Whiteside, Secretary Business Manager with the Hospital Employees Union. Jennifer, thanks so much for being with us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, we've talked about this in the past and certainly during an outbreak, during a pandemic, uh, cleaning of the hospitals and uh, other centers is extremely important. Uh, what is some of your what are your concerns, though, that you have raised about the salaries and wages of those who do the cleaning? Well, I, th- I think it's, it's important to understand that, of course, this is a challenge that we have never before experienced in our healthcare system. We've never dealt with a situation like this before. The scale of it is, uh, is enormous. And I have to say that going into this crisis, our healthcare system, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, where some of the work is contracted and privatized, as, you know, wasn't best positioned to really be uh, very responsive to the uh, uh, to the to the scale of the uh, of the challenges that we're facing. So, what what happens in um, our hospitals in the Lower Mainland and on southern Vancouver, southern Vancouver Island, where uh, housekeeping and dietary work um, has been privatized for the last you know almost twenty years now, um, we have uh, uh, you know uh, thousands of workers who, because they're not directly employed um, or directed by the, by the health authority and by the hospitals, we are having to, uh, they're having to work through the contractors in order to communicate information about infection control standards, communicate information about uh, the response that the health authority and that hospitals are taking to this situation, uh, communicate information about the standards by which health authority employed uh, employees are being treated, uh, in the hopes, of course, that that, that will be extended to, um, to, uh, to to contracted workers. And, of course, when it comes to the question about wages, housekeepers cleaning our hospitals uh, in the Lower Mainland and on Southern Vancouver Island earn less today than they did when we were dealing with the SARS, outbreaks, uh, the SARS outbreak about 18 years ago. And that's based on, on the rate of inflation and what, and what the, the hourly wage is right now? Well, it's based on the fact that the wages were dramatically cut as a result of contracting out of housekeeping and dietary work in 2003-2004. The wages were cut in half um, at, at that time. 
and uh, there's simply as uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the wages simply haven't re- haven't recovered. So, for example, a uh, 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 housekeeping staff in the Interior Health Authority, where they're directly employed by the Health Authority, uh, they earn about uh, more than $3 an hour more than a, than a housekeeper earns in the Lower Mainland at our flagship our flagship hospital in our healthcare system, Vancouver General Hospital. Uh, the cleaners are, uh, there earn just over $17 an hour. And it's and it's what twenty dollars an hour in interior it's health. It's just it's over twenty twenty fifty or so uh, for in, in the interior, in in any in any um, uh, in 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 any um, health authority where the health authorities directly employ the housekeepers. Uh, and is there a difference? Do you think then in the quality of the work that's being done? I think there's no difference in the quality of the work that's being done. And I think you only had to read the piece in the Globe and Mail uh, last weekend where uh, one of our members, uh, Pressy Miguel, was was featured. She is a, a cleaner at St. Paul's Hospital and has been working for many years in the healthcare in the healthcare system, considers herself to be a healthcare worker, absolutely. And, and Pressy is absolutely on the front line. Pressy and the thousands of her colleagues are on the front lines of keeping our hospitals and our long-term care facilities safe. Uh, in terms of the the, the work that they uh, that they do cleaning uh, the environment for uh, for patients and residents and for the public that utilize those those facilities, but they are often invisible and forgotten workers. Uh, so, if this was uh, and like you said, this is something that has been raised before uh, and and by previous um, members or leaders of the HEU. Uh, if this was something then that uh, the NDP was looking at to being a labor friendly government, why wouldn't they have changed it back to how it was before it was contracted out? Well, I mean, what I can say about that is that we, I mean, certainly uh, this, uh, you know, this has been the subject of discussion. Uh, it's been the subject of public discussion. We we negotiated a, a collective agreement in our in our, our public sector collective agreement that established a provision to look at work that was contracted out um, following from, from Bill 29 back in the early 2000s and to um, look at the conditions under which and uh, that that could potentially be be repatriated to the health authorities and we've been engaged in that process and of course everything has been interrupted now as a result of, of needing to address covid we we know of course also that that um, that bill 29 and 94 were repealed by this government and that really paved the path for a discussion about how do we best organize uh, the important work that needs to be done in our healthcare system uh, does it make sense to have uh, contracted operators as a sort of middle organization in between the work that health authorities need to do and hospitals need to do to direct the workforce. And I think that what we're experiencing, what our members are experiencing, is that that creates uh, uh, many, many problems. It creates problems for them in terms of uh, ensuring that they have proper access to um, personal protective equipment uh, ensuring that they have proper, uh, um, uh, you know, access to and training around um, around infection control procedures. I think any time you're getting one or two steps removed from the, the people who are actually responsible for operating our healthcare system, the message can get diluted, and that's a concern. Uh, and you layer that on top of uh, the fact that these folks are working for substandard wages. Uh, there's no pension. I mean, these folks don't aren't earning a pension. Um, there's no retirement security for these folks, yet they are uh, re- literally putting themselves on the line every single day, every single day. And our members go home, they take, they, they, fear, they, they worry about their own exposure in the workplace, 
and they worry about what happens if they bring about this virus home to their families. And of course, that's a, that's a, that's a, a worry that every single healthcare worker who is on the front lines um, is, is living with today. But I mean, housekeepers no less than any other worker. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Jennifer, thanks for joining us to talk about this, though. I'm sure we'll uh, talk about it again. But uh, for today, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. Uh, The mayor of Vancouver is speaking right now about COVID-19. If there are any announcements, so we will bring those to you as they are made. But we want to shift gears a little bit right now and speak about an announcement that was made earlier this morning. This was part of the prime minister's speaking to the nation when they announced that there will be more help for students in this country. We will now give CSJ employers a subsidy of up to 100% to cover the costs of hiring students. We will also extend the time frame for job placement until the winter because we know that some jobs will start later than usual. And because many businesses have had to scale back their operations, they will be able to hire students part-time. So talking about the Canada Summer Jobs Program and some more flexibility there, will it be enough to help students through this challenging time? Let's bring in Jasdeep Gill, Vice President of External Relations with the Simon Fraser Student Society. Jasdeep, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, Does this announcement, do you think that will help or, or be welcomed by students? I definitely think this is a a step in the right direction. Uh, What we realize is that many students are relying on co-op placements or summer jobs to save up for the upcoming school year. And a lot of these positions are either disappearing or are in limbo because of hiring freezes or other challenges that companies are facing. We also have the add-on of new graduates who are going into a market where they're either seeing that companies are are becoming a lot more competitive to get into or or the opportunities or the range of opportunities that they have is is really slim. So wage subsidies like this can really encourage employers to keep their internship programs and their summer programs going for students who do need them. And that's talking about co-op students and those particular programs. Are there concerns though, and as you mentioned, a lot of jobs that have disappeared uh, because a lot of students also work in restaurants and work in the service industry and a lot of those jobs right now simply aren't there. Yes, exactly. So what we see is the hospitality industry, the food industry, and a lot of these part-time positions in retail that are simply not available anymore. And students do rely on this to supplement um, either their tuition or their living costs that might not be covered with student loans or other credit card debt that they have that they're also trying to manage at the same time. So we really realize that students are being hit hard by a lot of the challenges that we are seeing with the conditions that we're facing. Um, They've also talked, or the Prime Minister has also talked about the six-month interest-free moratorium on Canada student loans, the wage subsidy as well, that could help out some students. Uh, Do those measures, do you think, go far enough? They are helping at the moment, but uh, at the same time, we do need to look at the fact that there was a lot of students going into the summer that weren't currently employed. And when we do look at the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, one of the requirements for that is that you had to be either uh, have earning a fi- minimum of $5,000 in the previous year or have a job at the time that the containment measures were enacted. And we realized that a lot of students were not in that position, so they don't apply for that aid. And what we're looking at right now is the government is, is working to fill some of these gaps, and we hope to see more of this happening because students were kind of left uh, in the gray area and were unsure of what their prospects look like for the summer.
And how are students doing as far as online learning and distance learning? It's something that's a, a little bit challenging, a little hard to adjust to for some some students, especially when you're looking at courses that have, um, let's say, lab requirements or, or some other hands-on practicums that are required um, in person. So there has been this, this challenge and a learning curve for both professors and students as they try to shift um, into this new form of education. But I believe that's something that uh, universities have are really have been supporting students on. So we've seen things like uh, different ways of receiving your final grade, um, turning it into a, a pass or a fail rather than a letter grade, because we do see that students that are having difficulties adjusting to this new uh, version of education might not be doing so well in their courses um, at the end of the term. So it's all about working with your professor in your university and taking uh, advantage of some of these um, additional measures that are being offered to help students adjust. And and how are students doing? Because I would imagine, apart from exactly what you just mentioned, the shift in how students are learning and having classwork and that delivered, uh, students in residence maybe would be different from this group. But as far as paying the rent and people that live off campus or have rentals, so that's got to be an added stress to students as well. Absolutely. And that's something that we've also reached out to the provincial government recently to get a little bit more clarity Um, We do realize that there is a $500 monthly subsidy you can get towards your rent, but we were seeing that it didn't apply to residents, uh, students living on residents. So we've been working on getting some more information. A lot of these measures that have been enacted, um, they are a work in progress, and sometimes we do see that students are in unique positions that are not really covered uh, by a lot of these programs. So a part of our job is to look into these uh, new policies and measures and see where we can make sure that students have additional help. Um, In addition to what the government is providing, um, the SFSS has also uh, chipped in uh, funding to make sure that students have have additional measures or resources that they can apply, uh, apply to if they need some financial assistance. And is there anything else that sticks out for you that students that you don't think has been addressed as far as how students fit into this pandemic and are being negatively impacted by it? I believe uh, what's really challenging uh, right now is students that are graduating that are being confronted with a, a job market or prospects where they're really unsure. And I think whether the reality is if they get a job or not, there's this added amount of stress um, uh, that comes along with job search. And that exists even without situations like this. So when you put this into the mix, we're confronted with uncertainty. And I think a lot of our challenge comes with um, getting the right information to students at the right time. So in addition to um, working with uh, schools, it's also important for students to make sure that they're being supported when it comes to job search and how to deal with the challenges of this new um, these new prospects. So uh, some of the advice that we've been receiving is to really contact uh, your career advisors um, that work at your universities and make sure we're working with them to make sure that our new graduates and people, uh, students searching for jobs in the summer, have that additional support and somebody to speak to during this time. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Jazdeep, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Jazdeep Gill, Vice President of External Relations at the Simon Fraser Student Society. If you are a student, we would love to hear from you. How are you getting through uh, this uh, difficult and unprecedented time? And do you think the changes to the Canada Summer Jobs Program will be beneficial to you? Give the Buzz line a call, 604-331-BUZZ, or you can email me, jill, at cknw. 
Thanks for being with us. Well, it wasn't that long ago we were talking with Kyla Lee. She is a lawyer at Acumen Law, but we weren't talking about any legal cases. We were talking about the fact she was a presumptive case of COVID-19 and was going into quarantine. Well, let's check in with her now to see how things are going. Kyla Lee joins me on the line. Hello to you. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, we were just trying to do the math on how long ago it was that you got back from the United States, then went into quarantine. So how long have you been in isolation? Um, for almost three weeks, exactly now, um, since I guess since I was quarantined and more than three weeks since I've been in isolation. Right. And I know you were you were tweeting about the fever and some of the, the symptoms and what you were feeling. Uh, how are you feeling now? I'm feeling great now. I've had uh, now uh, about 48 hours since I've had any symptoms of COVID-19. No fever, no coughing, uh, nothing left over. So I'm feeling great. (laughs) (laughs) That is good to hear. Uh, What was the worst of it? The worst part um, was nights and especially um, around day uh, seven or eight. Um, I had some really bad nights where my fever was really high. I had a lot of trouble breathing, a lot of chest pain. I had to go sit outside, turn all the heat off in my house, turn all the fans on, (laughs) sit in front of the fan and just try and focus on breathing and getting back to sleep. And did you ever at any point think you would have to go to the hospital? Um, I didn't. I was lucky because my mom and my sister are both nurses, so I was able to check in on um, uh, with them every time I was feeling worse. And they would tell me, no, you're not at a point where you need to go to the hospital and here's what you need to look at um, to look out for that. So I was lucky to be able to have that contact because I think if I hadn't, I probably would have been thinking maybe I should be going to a hospital. I can barely breathe right now. Yeah, that's nice to have the, the medical resources so close to home. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you say to people then that are still uh, thinking that it's not that big of a deal? We're still hearing from people who aren't isolating when they come home and aren't taking those uh, precautions. What do you say to those? That they're insane. I mean, you're you're insane. We know from Dr. Bonnie Henry that this is out in community. We hear about new cases every day that aren't cases in care homes. So we know there are community positive cases. You're rolling the dice with your life and with the life of your loved ones, because if you get a mild case, and you transmit it to somebody that you live with or somebody that you've been around in close contact with, um, you know, that person could die. And you don't want to be responsible for that. I can't imagine having to live with knowing that you behaved so irresponsibly that you caused that much suffering to another person. And as far as you know, because you did go into isolation when you got back and then uh, develop symptoms, did you pass it on to anybody? No, nobody uh, that I was with before I went into isolation developed any symptoms. So as far as I know, I did not pass it on to anybody, thankfully. <laughs> that, that is a good thing. So you feel, you feel good. Are there any residual uh, sickness, uh, sickness or any residual uh, feelings of, of, of being ill? No, nothing that I can tell. Um, I'm not sure yet whether my sense of taste and smell have come back fully because I've been isolated in my house. I haven't had any opportunity to go somewhere where I would smell anything different than what I'm smelling every day. So that's the one thing I'm curious about because a lot of people have said that your sense of taste and smell never return the same way that they used to be. So it'll be interesting to see when I leave my house what that's like. Uh, that is interesting because those symptoms too aren't universal. They've been different. We've heard reports from some people who've said they've lost their taste and smell and that was a sign of it. So you did lose yours. I didn't lose mine completely, but it was really altered. So my taste was very dulled. I basically just put a lot of garlic on everything Mm. I ate at home um, because that was something that I could taste and it made food more enjoyable.
All right. When, where's going to be the first place you go then when you can finally get out and start getting back into the community? Uh, this is kind of silly, but McDonald's. <laughs> I was really craving uh, a cheeseburger the entire time I was at home and I couldn't get one. So. Hmm. All right. And not that we're encouraging. I know people will hear that and think I'm encouraging you to go out to when we're all being told to stay home. But that's uh, we're allowed to go and get food and do it safely. So uh, definitely, uh, um, I hope you enjoy uh, the McDonald's. Uh, will you take will. any extra precautions as far as wearing a mask or will you do anything differently as you kind of reenter society? Um, I don't have any any mask, but I might put a scarf over my face. I mean, what I'm hearing from Dr. Bonnie Henry and other people is that I have an immunity, but I don't know, um, and there's no way for me to know whether I still have particles of virus in me. So to protect other people, I think that's the appropriate course of action. And of course, I'll be observing all of the social distancing thing and make sure to bring Lysol wipes so if I touch anything, I can wipe it down afterwards. All right. Sounds like you've got that figured out. I wanted to ask you as well, you tweeted out uh, several hours ago that you're also going to be running to be a bencher for the Law Society of BC. That sounds very exciting. Yeah, I'm excited about it. (laughs) So what does that entail? Um, adventures are essentially like the volunteer board of governors for the law society. So they deal with um, uh, amendments to the law society rules, professional discipline issues. They serve on committees that make um, policies for the law society, like truth and reconciliation, um, rules committees, practice uh, standards, those types of things. All right. And, and how do you actually become a bencher? You have to be elected. Um, so uh, this election is for lawyers in Vancouver, um, and there's an election. Uh, votes are taking place from May May 5th to May 19th, and then the person who gets the most votes gets to be the venture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. Now, did you come up with that? Because I would imagine when uh, people are isolated and in quarantine, because it's such a, a rare thing for so many of us, so not so much now that there's a pandemic, but uh, not many people, I think, have spent that much time alone isolating. What happened to your kind of mental state and things that you thought about or maybe planned for in the future? Well, I mean, for me, I've, I've always been the type of person that's focusing on, you know, how I can make the most out of whatever situation I'm in. So for me, it's been planning on how am I going to set myself up to be in the best position to resurrect, you know, the business when I'm when I'm able to be back at work, to deal with my clients' files, um, and to use the lessons that I've learned from having to work remotely to make processes at work um, and in general more efficient um, and to improve communication strategies. So just trying to find the silver linings. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it there. And great to hear that you're back and you're mended and back and ready uh, to get that fast food <laughs> cheeseburger. Uh, Kyla, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your experience with us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, an update in the race for president. Today, I congratulate Joe Biden, a very decent man who I will work with to move our progressive ideas forward. That was Bernie Sanders announcing he is dropping out of the race. So let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Global Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Not a huge surprise, I would imagine, to hear this. No, not a huge surprise uh, outside of the fact that, you know, a lot of people have forgotten that the U.S. is actually in an election right now because we've been gripped so hard with this COVID-19 crisis. But yes, uh, not a surprise uh, given that Bernie Sanders, who came on very strong earlier this year, he had a win in uh, New Hampshire. uh, He had a win in uh, a near win uh, in uh, in Iowa and then a win in Nevada. uh, But 
he simply struggled to maintain uh, that momentum going into the U.S. Deep South, and he started to trail behind Joe Biden, who was picking up a lot of the votes from uh, the African-American population in the U.S. South. And because of that, Joe, uh, Bernie Sanders today simply saying it was almost impossible for him to be able to catch up and then make a lead when it comes to delegate count. Right. And you're right. So we're, we're now so focused on COVID-19. But looking back to how things started in the presidential race, it does seem quite bizarre that uh, I remember it wasn't that long ago. People were saying, where's Biden and Warren? What happened to them? They're not they're out of the gate. They're, they're nowhere to be seen and thinking that Joe Biden didn't have a chance. And here we are today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, Joe Biden uh, from the get-go had said that he was going to put all of his eggs into one basket when it came to South Carolina. He barely had boots on the ground uh, for the Iowa caucuses. He really had no presence uh, in New Hampshire, and he really tried to put a presence on the ground in Nevada by the time uh, that primary was starting up, but understood that the numbers were in his favor when it came to minority populations specifically the African-American population. And he was given a couple of high uh, boosts, high-profile boosts from lawmakers in South Carolina. And that's what really propelled him into this race and started to stunt that growth uh, that Bernie Sanders was trying to gain from the early wins that he had. Uh, and then, you know, as the weeks went by and his primary started to be canceled and as COVID-19 kind of crept into the picture, it really pushed both men off to the sidelines. We heard more from uh, Joe Biden than we did from Bernie Sanders. And then we finally heard that Bernie Sanders said, you know what, it's just going to be too hard to keep going. And how are things moving forward with the primaries and with COVID-19, with physical distancing and dealing with that? Well, look, primaries up until recently were being postponed and rescheduled for some time in June, except yesterday. Wisconsin went ahead with their primary, despite the fact the CDC and the president have asked people to limit their social gatherings to 10 or less and to put six feet distance uh, to prevent the spread and to kind of curb that spread. Uh, the, the state went forward with these elections. The Democratic governor had tried over and over to postpone it, but the state house, the state uh, senate are Republican controlled, so they kept blocking his efforts. He then put an executive order in place uh, to stop the election from going pl- uh, going forward. And then the, cons- the uh, conservative-leaning Supreme Court in Wisconsin also overturned his request. Uh, and essentially what it did was put an undue burden on the voters' shoulders, uh, putting their lives at risk and their health at risk to have to go out and cast a ballot. Right, because even the pictures and the coverage, long, long lines, Some, in some cases people trying to distance, in some cases not. A lot of people wearing masks. It did seem bizarre, I think, to a lot of people that that primary went ahead. It did seem bizarre, but what also made it worse was the fact that you had these five and six hour lines with people trying to go in to cast a ballot because there were so few people who actually showed up to work at polling stations, but also there were fewer polling stations that were opened up uh, because of the healthcare crisis. So essentially what happened was you had more people funneling into fewer places, and because of that, you had more people standing in line, sometimes closer to each other than that six feet distance would allow, simply because uh, available space wasn't there. Uh, but what it did was cause a lot of confusion and frustration, not only for the people trying to cast a ballot, but for healthcare officials across the state who have actively been working to try and ensure that people maintain their distance from each other. Also worth pointing out, Wisconsin is under a stay-at-home order right now, and people were forced to go outside. Uh, So what's going to happen next, do you think, as we continue moving forward in the election? 
Well, I mean, there are a number of primaries that are still uh, still on the April schedule that are in the process of being moved around. It's really up to governors and up to uh, the Democratic Committee and the Republican Committee. Uh, they A lot of these uh, primaries have now been rescheduled to June. We also know the Democratic National Convention, which would have been in place to kind of choose whether or not it would have been Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. That's now been pushed through to August, which kind of lines up better with the Republican National Convention. Uh, we're also hearing, though, the Democrats could try to figure out a way to do this online and virtual as a way to keep fewer people in one massive room if this crisis hasn't lifted by then. So there's a lot of variables and a lot of unknowns as we try to wade our way through what's left of this election season. Uh, so very likely rewriting more election rules as we move forward, because like you said, we don't know what's going to be happening next. I mean, the, the, the uh, president was tweeting earlier saying that he wants everybody to forget about this as soon as possible. But even that uh, getting a lot of criticism and people wondering, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Well, exactly. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how long this is going to last. Even the president's health experts who are reading modeling that says, you know, 60,000 Americans could die from COVID-19 by August. August is when these conventions take place. And if things haven't died down by August, uh, that was a bad term. If things haven't settled down by August, uh, the election is only a couple of months away from that. And there are still plenty of unknown and unanswered questions as to what happens on Election Day. If this crisis is still keeping a grip over the United States, does that potentially potentially throw uh, the November date into flux and the election potentially has to be moved down the road. These are kind of ongoing circular questions that are taking place right now amongst election committees around the country. All right, we'll leave it there. Reggie, uh, always great to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. And just a reminder, we will bring you that news conference with Premier John Horgan live as it happens, expecting that around 1.15 today. Right now, though, we are going to check in with BC's seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie, about what measures are being done as far as looking after some of the most vulnerable people in our province. And she joins me on the line now. Isabel McKenzie, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Good afternoon, Jill. We wanted to check in with you. It's been a few days since the 211 service was announced, and you spoke about the need for people to connect if they're able to help seniors and seniors to reach out if they need that help. But how has the response been to that service? Well, it's been uh, very heartwarming, actually, Jill. So we now have over 5,000 uh, registered uh, volunteers and seniors, and the, we, we're getting hundreds more each day. And so I'm very pleased to talk about how in the last week we've had literally thousands of seniors that have received some virtual visits and wellness checks and many hundreds have had their groceries delivered and many hundreds have had uh, meals either prepared for them or delivered for them. So we're, the volunteers are definitely connecting with the seniors in their community and it's happening all over British Columbia so it's yes it's happening in the lower mainland but it's also happening up in Prince George and uh, over in the interior and over here on the island as well. Uh, Are you concerned at all about seniors maybe that aren't aware of the service or that aren't a part of that that do still need some help? Yeah, you always worry uh, about, you know, who you're reaching, but it's always who are you not reaching. And that is uh, in, in many endeavors, not just this one. And so we're continuing to promote the program and uh, hopefully through uh, your uh, listenership and, and others, uh, we will continue to get the message out there that if you, uh, you want to help a senior in your community, no matter where you live, call 211 or visit the website bc211.ca 
and most particularly if you are a senior and you are needing some help to get your groceries, your medications, you're feeling you want to be connected, just pick up the phone and call 211 and you will get connected with somebody in your community. We're connecting the seniors. Uh, The goal was to connect them within 48 hours, and we're getting a little bit better than that. Uh, There's a bit of some some cases are uh, what I would call uh, very urgent cases. There are many who normally are able to go out and get their groceries, but we're saying don't do that now, and so they're a little bit able to to call in advance, but we're getting some others that are uh, the, the cupboards bare, as they say, and we're getting in there as quickly as we can. One of the other uh, things that the government did recently that is very helpful as well, Jill, is they recently announced that the seniors who receive the senior supplement, so these are really low-income seniors. There's about 53,000 of them in British Columbia. And to give you an idea, their incomes are about 17 to 18,000 a year. That's it. Um, and so for the next three months, they're going to get an extra $300 a month. And that's really going to help because we're also hearing, and I'm sure this applies to everybody, that some of the cost of some of the groceries are going to be going up, and we've already seen a bit of that um, as sort of the chain reaction of all the things related to COVID play out. Hmm. Uh, that That is good news uh, and hopefully uh, brings a little bit of relief uh, for seniors uh, in that uh, scenario. Um, is there any concern over screening or is it different because we're doing virtual visits and in the case of grocery or delivery, people probably aren't going into their homes, they're leaving them for seniors. Uh, but is there any concern or do you have to do screening when people sign up as volunteers? Yes, all the volunteers do go through the standard criminal record check that every volunteer uh, delivering services to vulnerable uh, adults and children goes through every uh, all all of the time, Jill. Um, so that takes an extra day uh, for the volunteers to go through that um, vulnerable sector record check, we call it, and the criminal record check. Um, we're very fortunate. The Solicitor General has agreed to sort of uh, put them through the queue a little bit quicker, but the process they go through is the same. So I think it's also reassuring for some seniors and their family members to know that the person who's contacting the senior, uh, even if they're not physically in the home, they still know where they live potentially and have their phone number, that that person's gone through the, through the criminal record check screening process. And do you have you been um, watching, or do you have concerns about uh, in in an, another scenario? We've been talking a lot about seniors that are in long term care. Uh, people have been even writing to us saying they're very afraid of this virus getting into the home if it's not already, and considering taking their seniors, their loved ones, out of the care homes. I know Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, addressed this uh, this week as well. Are you hearing concerns or people that are that are mulling over doing that? Yes, I'm hearing the same concerns that you're hearing and the same concerns that um, my colleague Dr. Henry is is hearing as well. And I think uh, I share uh, the concern also around taking loved ones out of the care home during the pandemic and that now may not be the time to do that for a whole uh, host of reasons, uh, not the least of which is you could be taking your mom or dad out for quite a while and uh, when they go back, because they're coming from the community into the care home, if the pandemic is still on, 
they may need to be uh, isolated for 14 days just to so so there's there's some complications but i think jill it's really understandable the fear that families and seniors have when we hear about uh, on the news what's happening in some care homes and we know in british columbia we have had uh, two serious what i would call very serious outbreaks in two care homes uh lynn valley and harrow park We've had other uh, outbreaks that have uh, been managed fairly successfully. Uh, some have been contained to just one person. You know, you you learn from every experience, and the pandemic, because every step is new for everybody, we learned a lot from the Harrow Park and Lynn Valley uh, outbreaks and have put a lot of uh, additional protocols, additional to our, our normal outbreak protocols in place, including we now call it an outbreak with one case. Our, normally an outbreak is declared on two cases with one laboratory confirmed. So we have enhanced, uh, I think, the, uh, the protocols to try and ensure what we saw at Lynn Valley and Harrow Park doesn't happen again. Not to say it couldn't, um, but we're doing more. And I, I hope that that will bring some comfort uh, to families and residents to know that. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Isabel McKenzie, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us. Well, this is something that people have been talking about for some time. And if you are a licensed gun owner in this province, in this country, you might have seen shortages of ammunition, at least at some of the bigger stores, whether you're going to Cabela's or other places to get that. A lot of the ammunition, specifically ammunition used for hunting, the shelves seemed to be a bit empty. Very different what's happening in Canada compared to the United States. But my next guest has written about that. Noah Schwartz is a PhD candidate in political science at Carleton University, and he researches firearms policy and the gun rights movement throughout North America. And he joins us on the line now. Noah, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I'm glad you wrote about this and and took a look specifically at the differences between the United States and Canada, uh, not only in gun law and policy, but uh, while we're seeing perhaps an increase in purchasing in both countries, very, very different motivation and process for doing that. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, what we're seeing in the United States, um, uh, what we saw, what the data shows is that we saw sort of between 2.3 and 2.6 million gun sales in the U.S. in March. Um, and I think a lot of this is being driven sort of by fears in the U.S. Um, regarding, you know, people's ability to protect themselves during the pandemic. Uh, I think what we see generally is that Americans, and especially American gun owners, tend to have higher distrust of state institutions uh, than in Canada. And, and many Americans are sort of feeling that you really can't depend on the government at the moment uh, for protection. And I think that's driving a lot of the gun sales down there, um, but very, very different here in Canada. And, and it's a bit frightening, I suppose, to think that here's this country where the idea being that it's purchasing of weapons, purchasing of guns, perhaps for the uh, the idea of self-defense. Uh, but as you said, very different in Canada. So what are we seeing as far as increased sales in Canada? Yeah, so um, unlike the United States, we, we don't have as many statistics on the gun, gun sales spike in Canada. Uh, that's because in the States, uh, whenever you purchase a firearm, you go through a background check at the counter. 
Um, so it's easier to track how many firearms are being purchased. Uh, in Canada, uh, gun owners uh, have, are required to have a license. And so the background checks are done kind of in the background on them. Um, they're not done at the point of purchase. If you have a license, um, you've been vetted by the RCMP, you're able to, to buy a gun. Um, so it, it's a bit harder to track the numbers there. But what we know from sort of reports from gun shops images on social media and the empty shelves you were talking about at places like Cabela's, um, that the, the sales have gone up. And, and what we can, we can guess related to that is that um, a lot of this is happening, what people are reporting is that it's happening because of fears of a shortage of supplies. Um, so uh, as your guest yesterday from the BC Wildlife Federation noted, a lot of people are starting to plan their hunting season and they're worried about potential disruptions in the supply chain. Uh, given that in Canada, the, the supply chain with regards to firearms and ammunition is very, very heavily dependent on the United States. Um, so when we see those empty shelves in the U.S., people start to, to feel the, a little bit worried about whether they'll have, uh, you know, their, their gun and their ammo for, for going out hunting. Um, same thing, sports shooters are, you know, summer is, uh, is the really big season for sports shooting, um, spring and summer. So a lot of sports shooters eager to get, uh, you know, if they're going to purchase a new guns and new ammunition to get out there. Um, this would be the time that they would do it. Uh, and then when they see those shortages down south, it, you know, it, it drives them to want to go and buy now. Hmm. Uh, because it is a very different mindset, isn't it? Like you said, with this idea of hunting or even sports shooting, it's not an issue of or, or a reason. It's not, it's not self-defense in Canada, because mainly because of our, our gun laws and, and, and what's in place to, to make sure that's not what gun ownership is all about. Definitely, yeah. The, the Canadian government regulates uh, firearms ownership very, very stringently in Canada, and that it not only includes, um, you know, regulating the guns themselves and licensing, uh, but also sort of the reasons uh, for why people can own firearms. So you have to, in order to own a firearm and get your license, you have to show some sort of need in Canada, and that means that you're, you know, a sports shooter, a target shooter, that you're a hunter, um, that you're a collector, uh, or that you need it for your occupation. For example, border uh, border guards or people working guarding armored trucks and stuff like that. Um, so you can't just uh, apply for a license and say, you know, I, I want the gun to protect myself. And and for, for people to, to get that too, in that some states have different rules and regulations, it's it's more of a patchwork in the United States. But in Canada as well, like you said, we don't have the statistics as much, but we certainly would, the RCMP know exactly how many, say, restricted weapons are out there because of the course you have to take and what you have to go through to get that license. Definitely. And that's another big difference between the sales that are happening in Canada and the United States. Um, so what, what we saw in the United States is that a lot of the gun sales going on right now um, are handgun sales rather than long gun sales. Um, and it's a lot of sort of first-time buyers that are buying those in the United States. Uh, whereas in Canada, um, it's much more difficult to acquire a handgun. You have to have the special restricted uh, PAL license, um, which means that you, you know, in order to buy handguns, you have to maintain membership with a gun range, um, which can be quite expensive, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars a year. Um, which means that, you know, most the handgun owners in Canada are, are going to be serious target shooters. Um, whereas in the United States, uh, as well, in, in some states, if you can pass the background check, um, you're able to buy a handgun and, and there's little restrictions uh, in that regard. Uh, do you think that, that the statistics or the numbers going up in people purchasing, uh, that it might be used incorrectly uh, by people who want tougher gun laws in Canada, who maybe don't understand that there already are these measures in place? I think there is a lot of, of um, confusion and maybe misunderstanding uh, that has been 
sort of circulating. And that was a large reason why I wanted to write that article in the conversation uh, was to clarify that, you know, if, if somebody is legally purchasing a gun in Canada, it means they've been vetted by the RCMP and the RCMP could find no reason why in the interest of public safety, they shouldn't be able to possess a firearm. Um, so really, I think um, a, a lot of Canadians are concerned because they're seeing what's happening south of the border. And then they hear about something similar happening in Canada. And I think it's important in these times where everybody's, you know, very worried uh, to set the public's mind at ease a little bit on this issue and say, you know, Canadians really have no public safety reason to be concerned about this spike in, in firearms and ammunition sale in Canada. Right, because very different from what you mentioned, the first-time buyers in the States who might be worried about looting or worried about protection. In Canada, if there is this increase in sales, the sales are being made by, the purchases are being made by people, like you said, who are already vetted. They didn't run out and get a license. They already had that license. Exactly. The process takes usually between sort of three and six months. Um, and it involves uh, signing up for, you know, you're taking your... your uh, firearm safety course or your restricted firearm safety course. You have to pass a written examination and as well as a practical examination. Um, and there's a number of waiting periods involved in all of those steps. Uh, so the people who are buying guns today uh, during during the sales spike are people that, you know, at the very least applied for their license three, four months ago at the very earliest. So, uh, yeah, so it's it's definitely people who are already most likely already planning to buy firearms anyway. All right. Uh, interesting piece and uh, very good information. We'll leave it there. Noah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, as you likely heard in the news, BC Parks is immediately closing all provincial parks. And this is in response to the widespread call for more actions to address COVID-19. And uh, to talk more about that and why the decision was made, we are joined by George Heyman. He is the BC Minister of Environment and Climate Change Strategy. Minister, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I think a lot of people, while will understand why this decision was made, uh, will be a bit upset to hearing that, especially going into a long weekend, if they were perhaps planning to distance themselves in a park, uh, won't be able to do that. But why was the decision made to close the parks immediately? Well, first of all, Jill, it was a difficult decision. We've been in <clears throat> regular contact with the Provincial Health Office over the last uh, two to three weeks about uh, in what ways we could make parks accessible to uh, to British Columbians who need a bit of fresh air and exercise and to keep their mental and physical health up. Now, campgrounds have been closed uh, for some time, but we did maintain uh, some day use and some hiking trails open. But uh, what we've seen is more and more people are coming out with, as the weather warms. Uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to social distance. Uh, it's become increasingly difficult for our limited staff to uh, to police that. We had a lot of feedback from First Nations, RCMP, local governments, uh, search and rescue organizations with concern about what was happening in some parks with, uh, with overcrowding, with uh, cars um, spilling out from the, the parking lot. So uh, we're following the advice of the provincial health officer that now is the time to uh, really escalate our efforts, our collective efforts to bend the curve and reduce the spread of COVID-19. Uh, she's advising people to stay home, get out for uh, an hour or so, uh, get some uh, exercise and fresh air, but do it someplace uh, that uh, doesn't mean traveling and that uh, that can allow you and others to maintain social distance. We, uh, 
we know parks are important to people. We, we know this is a difficult time. It's not a decision we took lightly, but it's one that's necessary. Uh, any concerns, though, in that parks would be one of the few places that people could get out of a city or get out of a very populated area and actually do social distancing, physical distancing? Are there concerns that instead, like you said, people will be staying close to home, but that will mean places like the, the seawall, places like uh, dog parks and beaches could potentially be quite busy? Well, I think the uh, I think the advice of the, uh, the provincial health officer to everyone, and I know municipalities are paying attention to this as well, that uh, that um, avoid places that are crowded. Uh, it's important to do that. A couple of weeks ago, I could uh, I could go to a beach and maintain a social distance. A week ago, I noticed that I I couldn't do that, uh, and others couldn't do that. So, chose other places to walk in my in my neighborhood where it's easier to maintain that uh, that two meter distance uh, you know I, I know this is hard Jill and I, uh, I I do think it's very important for uh, for people to get outside I know it's important for me but I also know it's important for all of us to protect our loved ones in our community and um, in this matter I think the provincial health officer's advice has consistently served us well uh, we'll continue to work with uh, with her and if we get to the point where we can um, reopen parks for people to uh, to do day hikes. Uh, campgrounds won't be open until at least May 31st. It takes a, it takes some time to get them up and ready, and we simply haven't been able to do it with the health crisis. But uh, as we can provide safe places for people, we will. The parks belong to British Columbians, but um, as everyone knows, uh, there's, there's nothing normal about life today. Very, very true. Uh, what would happen then? Uh, unfortunately, there are still some people that aren't taking uh, the rules and uh, the directives seriously. Uh, will there be enforcement then? Or, and how would that work if somebody still goes to a BC park? Well, we're putting, first of all, uh, signs up to ensure that if people miss the message on the news, that they uh, that they see it when they get there. In addition, uh, refunds for any reserved campgrounds up to May 31st are being automatically um, issued um, from the system with the reservations cancelled but we will uh, we have gates in some parks we will put barricades up uh, on the roadways if we have to we have uh, park rangers park operators and if necessary the conservation officer service that will be uh, will be uh, maintaining a watchful eye on the parks to make sure the order is uh, is being followed by people Um, we're going to take an educational approach, a supportive approach, uh, and encourage people to think again and uh, and leave. But there is the possibility of, uh, of fines if that is necessary for people who are simply unwilling to cooperate or, or don't get the hint the first time around. And is there kind of a, a breaking point for that? Because we've also been hearing in the city of Vancouver, the number yesterday, I believe, was they'd already handed out more than 1,600 warnings to people. At what point do you have to start fining people or getting more serious? Well, I think uh, I think when people aren't responding um, in the in the large majority to uh, <clears throat> to the notices that we give or the uh, the warnings they get from our uh, our park rangers or uh, or park operators, uh, then we have to consider uh, um, taking punitive action. But I, you know, my observation, Jill, is most British Columbians are responding really well and really cooperatively to to this crisis. People are finding a new sense of community, whether it's uh, appreciating um, essential workers, health workers, food store workers at seven o'clock every night, whether it's uh, checking in on neighbors and if people are self-isolated, dropping food off at their door. People are 
really trying collectively to defeat this thing together. And uh, I think, um, I think, and I'm, uh, I'm both, I'm hopeful that, um, that people are going to understand why we're doing this. And as I monitor social media traffic, there's, there's some criticism, but there's a lot more uh, thumbs up. Uh, do you know how many parks then have shut down? Uh, they're, uh, they're all being shut down uh, as of this notice. Uh, many of them had not opened, but we were allowing people in for day use. But um, as, of t- uh, as of our announcement today, we're shutting it down. Right. I was just wondering, I, wasn't, I'm, I didn't know offhand how many parks there are in B.C. I was just wondering how big the order is. Um, oh, well... There's a few hundred parks, Jill. I can't give you the exact the exact number, uh, but uh, uh, there are um, there are uh, there are a hundred. All right, so we will leave it there, uh, Minister George Heyman. Right. Thank you so much thank for your you. time. That is George Heyman. He is the BC Minister of the Environment and Climate Change Strategy. I uh, would love to hear your thoughts on this. If you want to send me an email, that's jill at cknw.com. Would you, would you, do you support this? Do you think it is a good idea to shut the BC parks? And I get it. They don't want people driving. They don't want people leaving their neighborhoods. But for a lot of people that live in the densely populated parts of the province, which in some cases is close to a park, that might be the only space where you could actually go and you could physically distance. So I'm curious what you think about this. As Minister Heyman said, it's been a mixed reaction while a lot of people are on board. Also a bit of criticism. Send me an email, Jill, that's J-I-L-L at cknw.com and uh, let me know what you think about this and all of the other measures as well. This comes on the heels or at the same on the same day that the Premier has announced that visitors or sorry, people, residents coming back to BC, not visitors, people who live here who come back by by land or air will have to show their self-isolation plan. And if they don't, they can be taken to a quarantine center until they have one. Do you think that goes far enough? Well, coming up this half hour, we are going to learn a little bit more about if you live in a strata building, a condo building, if you have concerns about the obligations the strata has to keep people safe during this pandemic, Claire Allen is going to join us to talk a bit more about that and bring us some expert advice. But first, we bring you the story of 20-year-old Milos Roman, who has played center for the Vancouver Giants for the past three seasons. Every year after the season concludes, he goes home to Slovakia to spend time with his family. This year, he even got to go home at Christmas. However, having just wrapped up the season a little earlier than planned with the team, cut short, as you know, because of the pandemic, he is now finding himself himself in a position where he is unable to go home. We were waiting until the season was over and we were waiting for uh, last words from the league and uh, it came out that they're going to cancel playoffs and uh, all other other games in, uh, in season, so... We were just waiting and uh, I just decided to wait here because it was uh, too late to to go home. So uh, now I'm just waiting and see see how the situation will be in a couple of weeks or, or months and then uh, I'm going to decide. But then for now it was uh, hard to get to Slovakia because uh, everything was shut down. So that was a decision I made. Right. So how did that, that work out? You were here playing uh, with the Giants and was the, the season canceled and then you, you tried to go home or you were, you were waiting to see what was going to happen with the season. So that's why you stayed here rather than going home as soon as possible. So, yeah, so I talked to, to family a lot about it and uh, to my billet family here. And then uh, I had to make 
I had to make call to stay or go home, but uh, it was uh, it was really hard to to go home, and uh, I would take risk on uh, at the airports, planes, and everything, and then I would uh, put my family to risk. Mm. It was the first thing I was really thinking that uh, it would be easier for for me to stay here, and uh, airports and the borders were shut down already in Slovakia, so I would have to flight somewhere to Austria or uh, Czech or somewhere and uh, the countries already had uh, a lot of problems so they were cancelling flights and uh, I would have to think to to get to Slovakia by a cab or taxi or something like that so uh, it was really hard and complicated uh, to get to Slovakia and uh, I had option to stay here in my blood family that uh, giants are supporting me with, uh, with this decision and uh, my blood family too so Uh, I'm really thankful for that uh, they could uh, keep me here and just uh, keep me safe. Uh, that that is good, and so they're okay with you staying because who knows at this point how long this is going to last or, or when you're going to be able to get back to Slovakia. Uh, so they're okay with with you staying. Oh, uh, my parents or my family? Uh, your billet family? Or, uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. I talked to them about it and. Uh, It's my third year here, so uh, my bill family talked to manager, general manager too, and uh, Giants are totally supporting this, so uh, everything's fine with this, and uh, I'm really happy for it that uh, I could be, I could stay here for for a while and just uh, be safe. And how is your family doing in Slovakia? Oh, they're fine. I'm calling them every day, and uh, like I said, everything's shut down, especially now for Easter time, and uh, they can't even go out or uh, travel somewhere. So they're basically going just to to work and back home, and then the groceries and doctors and uh, gas stations are open, so they can uh, they can go there. But uh, we said that there's uh, basically just going to work and back home. That's uh, that's the life there now. Hmm. And are there any other uh, Giants players in a similar situation that uh, is is here in, in BC and can't go home? Anyone that you know of? Uh, no, not so far. That uh, One uh, European player from Giants, he, he's from Czech, so he flew home. He had option uh, going there. Hmm. It was uh, easier to fly into to Prague, but uh, none of uh, I'm thinking for now. And are you on a visa or anything? Are you concerned that it's going to expire, or are you able to stay uh, in Canada legally? Oh uh, yeah, so, uh, my papers were uh, based on the on the season, so it was until the end of uh, June or so. So I really have to be thinking about it the next month or two. So this is the this is the part I will I'll be talking to. To, to people, to general managers or uh, people I know here and uh, try try to figure out what uh, was going to be best uh, for it. Right. So your papers expire at the end of June? Yeah. And and what about money? Are you able to get by? Uh, luckily, Oliver, like you said, your billet family is, is, is happy to have you stay, but it's got to be difficult to, without to getting an income or making money, is it? Oh... Yeah, but like, like I said, they uh, they taking me like uh, their son already. When it's my third year here, and uh, they totally said it's uh, no problem to to stay here. So uh, that was the part I was really uh, thinking about it. Uh, how how they gonna 
uh, figure out uh, what's going to be best. But, uh, yeah, like, uh, it's all same. Basically, they, uh, they just kept me here and uh, with no problems with anything. And uh, if, uh, if there's going to be something, of course, I'm going to talk to them. But for now, it's uh, everything is good. And a uh, big part of it, it's uh, how I said uh the Giants had no problem with it, and they talked to my billet family that uh, I can stay here, and uh, they can, they're not going to push me home with uh, all these uh, problems and everything going around. So that uh, that was a big part that uh, they said uh, it's, uh, it's no problem too. Well, that's, that's good. That's got to be a, a stress relief for sure. Uh, you must miss your family, though, being so far away and now being stuck here and not knowing when you might see them again. Yeah, but uh, nowadays it's uh, it's way easier that we can call every day, right? So mm-hmm. see each other. Then it's uh, way easier than just uh, uh, sending letters or something like uh, in back days. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of frustrating just uh, being here or like uh, with no season and nobody knows uh, what's gonna happen in uh, next season or something. So. Uh, yeah, everybody would uh, allow to be home, but uh, this is uh, this is my second family too. So, like uh, like I said, I feel like home and uh, I feel safe, and that was the big part of everything. And my family understood uh, everything about it, and they totally supported this uh, this idea. So, uh, we're fine. We're calling every day, and uh, this big part. All right. Well, Miles, thanks so much uh, for talking with me today uh, and sharing your story. Uh, hopefully, uh, it's g- great that you have the Billet family and you can stay safe and healthy. But thanks so much. And uh, hopefully one day on the other side of this, you'll get to home and it'll all be done. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, let's bring in CKNW contributor Claire Allen. She is here to talk about Strata Corporations and COVID-19. Good afternoon to you. Hi, Jill. Yes, uh, I've been pretty curious about this issue because I live in a stratified building and there have been a lot of signs in my lobby and in my elevator discussing how my strata is dealing with COVID-19. However, the signs about social distancing and, and you know, only allowing one person in an elevator at the time don't, didn't really answer all the questions I had about what my building was doing to keep its residents safe and also to keep, you know, the building running during this pandemic. So in search for those answers, I spoke with uh, Veronica Franco. She's a partner with Clark Wilson, LLP, and Maris Holmes. She's an associate lawyer with Clark Wilson as well about the responsibilities that Strata corporations have to their residents during this pandemic. And the first question I had was a big one for me because, you know, living in a condo unit myself with a bunch of other people, I was wondering if someone in your building has tested positive for COVID-19, what does your strata have to disclose to its residents? Here is Maris Holmes. If a resident does disclose that they have COVID, we we have recommended that notices be sent out uh, advising residents. Obviously, in that notice, the resident's name, unit number, floor number, any personal information about that resident shouldn't be disclosed. We've had in some instances that other residents want that information, but it should not be disclosed because it, it could possibly limit other people from self-reporting as well that they have COVID. And then when those no, when the Strata Council is notified, they can then take extra cleaning precautions and figure out how they should address this in their community. So they have no obligation to disclose 
who it is, but they have an obligation to disclose that there may have been somebody in the building, whether they lived there or if it was a, someone working on repairs or some sort of a servicing, like Veronica mentioned, that has tested positive. They do have an obligation to tell, to disclose that to uh, residents. They should be disclosing it to residents if there is someone. Also, the BC government, they protect the privacy of those people who test positive. So that is another reason why you can't be disclosing the, the personal information of these residents. So, I mean, you don't know if it's somebody on your floor in the unit next to you, but the your Strata um, Corporation should tell you that, you know, somebody has tested positive that is either living in the building or has been in the building. And uh, Maris and Veronica, you know, stress that the Strata Corporation has an obligation to maintain a clean environment in common areas, but Veronica... Franco said that COVID-19 has changed how stratas are dealing with amenities and routine repairs and maintenance. So I think a lot of strata corporations have considered or have done or taken steps to close their amenity facilities just because they don't really have an ability to monitor people who are attending or how many people attend those amenities. Um, and so some strata corporations have gone as far as develop rules that would allow them to shut down things like their pools or their gyms, for example. In terms of repairs and maintenance, we know that construction and the repair industry, that's considered an essential service. So they are able to get uh, their building repairs done. A lot of strata corporations have, I mean, it sort of runs the gamut. Some starting at the time of the pandemic, when it started, um, we're in the middle of building uh, renewals, for example, roof replacements or building envelope replacements, and those have continued. And then it's really up to the construction companies to abide by social distancing. Uh, but in some cases, some strata corporations have deferred some non-essential um, repair and maintenance. So, Jill, a lot of that essential repair and maintenance, you know, those things are dealt with at AGMs or SGMs. And Veronica says a lot of strata corporations have just canceled or postponed meetings in order to observe social distancing rules put in effect by Dr. Bonnie Henry. However, she noticed that uh, the issue of sky, the issue of skyrocketing insurance rates has created an issue for some strata corporations. One of the hardest issues right now is the insurance premium renewals. So while many strata corporations could probably get by with just deferring their AGM for a couple months in terms of it's not going to impact uh, their day-to-day -day functioning, uh, one of the more difficult situations is when they've had a you know 100% or a, or a doubling or a tripling of their insurance premiums that they have to now pay for and they don't have money in their operating fund budget to pay for them. So in that kind of a scenario, there may be a situation where they actually have to call through an AGM or an SGM in order to fund something like that. And in those situations, you take a look at sort of the, the, the complex. So some complexes are really small, so they can probably get away with having a very um, a socially distant meeting if they don't anticipate there to be much controversy at the AGM or SGM. So, I mean, yeah, so you could do, she also said that you could do voting by proxy or by virtual meetings, but apparently you have to have in your bylaw, your bylaw has to allow uh, virtual meetings because of issue of voting or um, something to do with that. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But one thing, Jill, that I thought was fascinating was that the COVID-19 pandemic has created some real issues for strata, for strata corporations in buildings that have age restrictions, such as a 55 plus building. Here is Maris Holmes again. Some of those 55 plus communities have care aids um, that come and go. 
So although the government restricted in long-term care facilities, carriage that move around to different uh, facilities, in the 55-plus strata communities, there's no such restriction. So um, we've had some questions uh, um, regarding limiting care aids or limiting the flow of people in and out of the buildings. And so, you know, I thought that was really interesting because obviously people are concerned about the exposure that care aids have to um, a possible COVID-19 case. And Veronica Franco said that while a strata can limit the amount of people entering common property, uh, strata corporations, that, by you can't really limit care aids coming in because that can be very tricky. It raises way too many issues of um, potentially human rights issues, right? Because if, if people people who are having care aides come to assist them once or you know once a week or twice a week or whatever frequency they probably have some kind of medical condition that requires them to have the care aide come into their home and then now suddenly it becomes an issue of um, are you limiting are you are you discriminating against them because of their disability and so in general we've said you can't really um, do that other than uh, the, the same kinds of steps that people take all the time um, in terms of cleaning their buildings and um, just being vigilant about staying away from common areas and staying at home as much as possible. So some good information there and an, an aspect I hadn't really thought about. And, you know, this same goes if you live in a stratified unit uh, building, you know, make sure you wash your hands. And uh, I'm sure that areas are being disinfected or just inquire about how often they're being disinfected. Um, Clark Wilson LLP has a great resource on their website about COVID-19 and strata uh, corporations, but there's also additional information available on the provincial government's website. All right. If you have noticed that during this COVID-19 pandemic, you maybe have been having anxiety dreams or dreams that are way out there and intense and strange. And if you were thinking you were the only one, well, fear not. You are not the only one. This is something that is happening to many people. And we are joined now by Dr. Anna Mosel, who is an author, a psychoanalyst and a dream work expert located in Vancouver. Dr. Mosel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. I'm so glad that you're talking about this and raising awareness about this because I will put myself in the group of people where the dreams are just off the charts and they have been for the past two weeks. So why is it people are having these bizarre, intense dreams? Well, I think, first of all, just simply the movement from being so out in the world and extroverted to being more in self-isolation and social distancing mode it's already going to elicit and bring the unconscious forward. So that coupled with the fact that we really are in a time of collective trauma um, is also another thing that is very significant for bringing dreams forward. And why would it be, uh, because a lot of people are talking about anxiety dreams, is that because of what we're seeing in the news or hearing on the news and because it is pretty easy right now to be inundated with news about this virus? Yes, I think people have to really find their balance between staying well-informed and not getting overwhelmed by the collective angst that is out there right now. Um, <clears throat> you, know, you know, and being confronted, I mean, like the existentialists are really good at talking about this. Anything that brings mortality into question brings up almost a core primary death instinct. And I think a lot of people are being confronted with that right now. 
And, and do you, would you call them nightmares then, or what is the difference, say, between an anxiety dream and a nightmare? Well, that's interesting. I would say that most people, if they're not familiar with working with their dreams right now, are going to be having very, very significant dreams of, like, radical change, um, tsunamis, earthquakes, and the anxiety that you're speaking of. Um, it's a little bit different from probably somebody who's been working with their dreams for a long time, because if they have, this will probably elicit a very deep opening inside that is opening to kind of like a new consciousness, and you'll see breakthroughs in, in the dream themes. And so what is actually happening when we, when we fall asleep, when we get into to REM sleep? Is that when the dreams start, or, or when are we you actually... what? They can actually happen in any cycle, in any cycle of sleeping. Um, but they're most commonly referred to in REM, and we go through about three to four REM cycles per night. And that's when most people have their dreams and remember their dreams from. And I know a lot of people will, there'll be parts of their dreams where they can connect it with a, with a specific thing that happened during the day, or it can also be something where you have no idea where this dream came from. So when you talk about working through your dreams, what does that involve? Well, you know, I specialize in working with dreams. So from a depth psychological perspective, over time when you're looking at your dreams, certain themes start to come through. And as you work and interreact with the dreams, it opens up into different material. And just simply the connection between consciousness and conscious thought and the unconscious material actually provides movement. And that's kind of what I'm referring to when I say working through the dreams. It's like an area of working through, we could say in depth psychology, primary complexes in order to see more clearly the patterns and the things that we're living out in our daily lives, but is often invisible to us. Is it oversimplifying it then to say people are having these dreams or these anxiety dreams because they're afraid or they're concerned about contracting the virus? No, I think at one level that's absolutely true. You know, there's many levels to dreaming, and at that kind of surface level, of course people are going to be experiencing that. Yeah. Uh, does yeah it, I wouldn't say it's an oversimplification. Okay. What, what, does it matter what you're doing right before, whether you're watching TV or you're on a screen or reading something right before you fall asleep? I think so. The state of mind that you're in before you go to sleep makes a big difference. And uh, as I say, there's so much collective energy going around. There's so much collective anxiety right now that it is really important to find some buffers from it, to find the things that um, are meaningful or that, you know, kind of clear your, your thoughts and your feeling sense and your body, you know, whatever works for individuals. And does it connect with, say, if you're feeling anxious about the virus and it's the same perhaps anxiety you felt about something else that was big or happening in your life years ago, do those things connect? Do those memories come to the to the surface? That's a really excellent question. They absolutely do. Because as I was saying, it's a collective trauma we're in right now. And you know, anything that brings up trauma at any level is also going to reverberate and resonate with any inner personal traumas that have not been worked through or integrated. So even dreams of like, um, let's say, invasions 
or home invasions or things like this might might be common for a lot of people. Hmm. So what advice do you give to people then that that are, are dreading this, thinking, okay, I, I have to go to sleep now, I have to get a good night's sleep, but I know I'm going to wake up or I'm going to have these ang- anxious dreams again? Yeah, you know, a friend and a colleague once said to me something that, that stayed with me, there's no such thing as a bad dream. And it's actually a really good sign if people are dreaming, because it means that their psyche is working through and symbolizing very difficult emotions and material. So it's a little bit more concerning for people who are simply waking up just with the feeling, just with the anxiety itself at a raw level. Once it's symbolized, that's already starting to move it through to some place of resolution. And, um, you know, for people that are interested, there's a lot of wonderful resources out there for working with dreams. And I have some on my website as well as an online course on dream work, but also locally at Banyan Books, and I know that they're delivering right now, they have a wonderful selection of books on dreams. So anything that people can do to start making some meaning out of the symbols that are coming through in their dreams is going to be enormously helpful for settling them and reducing the level of anxiety. Because one of the things that dreams are was referred to by one of my mentors. She called them the water of life, and they bring deeper meaning to life. And I think it's one of the most interesting things about this pandemic at one level, that it's forcing people into this place of isolation and introversion and self-reflection that is rarely at a collective cultural level taken very seriously or valued. And I think just from that perspective alone, it's a wonderful opportunity for people to start building a relationship with their dreams and start understanding them more. Something that um, Carl Jung referred to as the, the other half of life. All right. Well, it's uh, very interesting. And like you said, uh, there are resources if people want to check them out and uh, figure out a little bit more about what's going on. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Dr. Mosel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.